This is the Unraveled Podcast with hosts Caleb Aring and Nicole Richards. Join us as we unravel a new case every season. You are listening to Season 1, The Nightmare in Ada. I'm Caleb Aring. And I'm Nicole Richards. And you're listening to Unraveled Episode 3. Thank you for joining us for this new episode. Last week, we talked about the disappearance of Denise Haraway and those crucial hours after she disappeared. What the police did, what they didn't do, what happened in those moments after she disappeared, and what should have happened. If you're just now joining us for the first time... I strongly recommend you go back and listen to episodes one and two, otherwise you will probably be lost. Stay tuned, we are going to be talking about what happened next with the police investigation and who were the suspects that came out as they began looking into this disappearance. So our last episode brought us to Saturday night, late Saturday night after Denise Haraway went missing and all that had happened Um, in those first few hours after she was gone. The search really began in the early hours Sunday morning. Word had spread throughout Ada that volunteers were needed to begin the search for Denise Haraway. When we talked last week, the search that was happening on Saturday night right after she disappeared, that was just a search for an older model truck. That was really all they were looking for. Right. That was really all the information that they had had. The first information they got was about the color and kind of old model of this truck that they had gotten from Gene and the Timmons brothers. So that was what the police were originally working with. Okay. And so now on Sunday morning, we're actually looking for Denise. Right. Because, well, we're looking for Denise and we are also looking for the truck and we are also looking for these individuals that were talked about from Karen Wise, who was the clerk at JP's. So there is a lot of information going to the volunteers at this point. Um, And it's only been the following day. We're only talking now early Sunday morning. So where did the police get these volunteers, and and how were they splitting them up? Were there specific people who were uh, looking for the truck and the suspects and other who were looking for Denise? How did that work? Well, the volunteers were all kind of rounded up. They were Steve, her husband's fraternity brothers. The gun and rifle club got involved. I mean, this is a small town, and word spread quickly that she was missing. And so people were coming out of the woodwork to help. Um, And the search was going to be, there were folks that were going to fields, that were going to abandoned lots, that were going to wooded areas. As morbid as it is, there uh, some some of them are actually looking for a body. They're looking for Denise. What the volunteers needed was information. So this is where we introduce the sketches that were made. Okay, and so just to be clear, there there was someone who saw Denise and saw the person that she walked out with, but these sketches were not from that person. That was. That was um, Lenny Timmons, and he did not make any sketches with a sketch artist. No. And this is the part of the story. I mean, it's where things just continue to derail when you start looking at who should be giving firsthand accounts of who is the person that was walking out the door with Denise. And, you know, when we talked 
last week, and there are so many things about this case that I, I are just jaw-dropping, but the actual things that happened at the site of the disappearance were pretty egregious. But then, as this investigation continues, these these sketches are these kids from from JP's, right? And the only relation is that, you know, they had a truck, and I, I think they drove off in the direction of McAnally's, but there's no other reason to think that they had anything to do with this crime at all, right? Absolutely. At McAnally's, we know that there was one man seen. He was seen walking out the door. There was an eyewitness account of this man, what he looked like, you know, uh, some description is available of him. Yet when the sketches were made, and these are sketches that went on flyers, that went in the newspaper, that were shown on the news. These are the sketches that went everywhere. These sketches were made from Karen Wise's description of these two individuals who were, quote, acting weird in J.P.'s convenience store. In J.P.'s convenience store. Which is a totally different convenience store than where Denise has disappeared from. And other than acting weird, they didn't do anything dangerous at J.P.'s. Nothing. Nothing. It was a feeling she had of these individuals being in the store acting weird. So my other question for you is that Lenny and these two others who are with him, they're at the store. Lenny actually walks right by uh, Denise and the individual that she's with. Uh, The other two people with Lenny are in the car. They can kind of see this couple from a distance. They can also see the truck that the couple gets into. Is there any reason to believe that there was another person sitting in the truck already or sitting in the bed of the truck or somewhere in this truck to make this narrative of, of two people fit? Well, that is the... When the police were questioned and asked, why have we gone after... Why are we looking for two individuals when only one individual is seen? Their reasoning was exactly that. That from what the Timmons brothers and Jean had remembered was this individual and Denise got into the passenger side of the truck, therefore implying that there is a driver in the truck. That was kind of the only explanation that was kind of given as to why we were now saying maybe there were two people, even though only one individual had come out of the store. Although... In theory, with the way trucks are, you know, they both could have gotten in the passenger side and one could have scooted over and and driven. And, you know, when I think of how this is going to play out, if I have taken someone against their will, I'm not going to open the door for them and then maybe come around the other side of the truck or it's just, you know, I think when these are, it wasn't a factual account of things. There wasn't a second person seen at McAnally's. And really to me, what it comes down to is the person who saw even this one individual should have been the person talking to a sketch artist. Why Karen Wise was given the opportunity to not only give her story, but to also be responsible for sketches being made is beyond me. Well, I mean, I, I can kind of see maybe why they would talk to her. You know, it's another convenience store. Maybe people hang out at the at one convenience store and the next. I mean, it makes sense definitely to talk to her. Maybe it makes sense to have her draw a sketch, but to have her work with a sketch artist and not to have 
any of the people who were actually at McAnally's work with a sketch artist and maybe compare the sketches and see if they're the same. I mean, that's the part that really gets to me is that like this is their one and only source is someone who wasn't even at the scene, who has who has no idea. I mean, I don't know. Like, who are these two guys? And if they're out there listening, if if you were at JP's, you know, in on April 28th, 1984, and maybe you looked weird get in touch with us because we want to talk to you. But, you know, who knows? I don't, you know, we'll talk more, but I don't personally think that these guys were involved at all. I think that they were a couple of obnoxious kids who were out on a Saturday night and then drove who knows where afterwards. It's just a lot to place an entire investigation on, right? It's a it's a very weak branch of this tree to say that we're gonna say we're gonna put all of this on this one story it's it's way too much it it carried way too much weight these pictures went everywhere and these pictures are inevitably what what led us down this rabbit hole and what anyone who's paying attention to the case assumes that the perpetrators look like. I mean, it's what the what the police assumed that they looked like. Absolutely, because they're presented to the public in a way of, these are the individuals that we saw. And that's exactly how the flyers were. The flyers and the news on the, the, on the news stations and the radio was that if you have seen these individuals, call the police station, which implies to the public that whoever is in these two sketches is who took Denise. That's the, that's the implication. It doesn't say, you know, on the flyer, here are these two gentlemen that were seen at JP's. Or that might have information about Or we'd like to crime. question them. Exactly. It was, if you see these two individuals or you know who they are, call the police station because they're involved in the re- disappearance of Denise Haraway. So what also was offered on these sketches that went out was the owners of McAnally's was offering a $1,000 reward for any information leading to the whereabouts of Denise. And $1,000, I mean, to a, a lot of people, $1,000 is a lot in this day and age, but, you know, 1984. 30 years ago, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. it was that's a ton of money. Exactly. So it's even more... It gave these flyers and these pictures even more weight, right? It gave people more reason to to look at them closely. Exactly. And so then these sketches now are out. And so say, this is Saturday, this is early, this is happening on Sunday. By Tuesday, the sketches have made it to the front page of the paper, and police headquarters can barely handle the amount of phone calls they're getting. It has been reported that at the time, within those first few days, the police headquarters of Ada received more than 100 calls and more than 25 names were given. Which is a lot of calls to handle and a, and a lot of names to follow up on it if, if they actually follow up on all of those names. It's a huge amount of information and it's a, hu- it's a huge amount of leads, though again, I, I don't think I can stress enough that the leads are coming from a place that is very questionable. To search for people who were at a different Dif- convenience store. Right. So before we get too deep into talking about the sketches and the, the, the calls that came out of it and the suspects that came out of it, let's talk a little bit more about the search for Denise. You mentioned that they had a lot of volunteers coming out of the woodwork to help out. So what did all of those volunteers do? What, what, how were they trying to solve this or find Denise? 
Well, before the sketches were made, they had a picture of Denise, and they went around with that, and 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 copies were made of this, and they were plastered everywhere. Um, that there was a missing persons. So these photos of Denise made their rounds, and that was what the volunteers were working with prior to the sketches. Okay, so, you know, I mean, you mentioned it's morbid, as it seems, especially so early on, some of them were searching for a body, but then there were a number of others who were mobilized with her picture, just trying to find anyone who had seen her or had any inkling of, you know, where she might have gone to. Yeah. I mean, the town came together. And her husband comes from a very prominent family in Ada. So there was a lot of support. And really, if we can imagine what it would be like for a town as small as Ada during this time period, you know, this isn't a time period where you can just kind of post up online you have to pound the pavement. You have to hang posters. You have to talk to people. You have to drive out to the outskirts of town. It really is this community effort. Well, and I I think in missing persons cases where there isn't a body, the family stays hopeful for a long time. And right now we're, we're just talking about right after she disappears. So definitely I think it sounds like a lot was put into just finding her alive. Absolutely. These people were shook and they were devastated and they were wanting and hoping and holding out that they were going to find Denise. So going back, you had mentioned these sketches that were made of people who may or may not have actually had anything to do with the crime. Uh, And the police got a lot of calls from these sketches. So what happened? Where did that go? Well, these calls start coming in. And like I said, over 25 names were given because many of the names are being given over and over again. Um, The police are familiar with some names. Some names were given once. Some names were given multiple times. There was an instance, Billy Charlie, one individual whose name was given. His name was given by more than 30 callers. And the police knew Billy, so they called him in for questioning. He comes into the headquarters with his parents, who verify that Billy was at home with them on Saturday night. The police believe the parents. Everyone goes home. He's no longer a suspect. This is kind of the process. So his alibi is his parents. Yeah, he's one example of a name that was given multiple times, and his parents came in with him. That was this young man's alibi. The police said, okay. And he was no longer a suspect. He was completely taken off the list, even though his name was given more than 30 times. Well, that it just doesn't seem to me like the most solid or reliable alibi. It seems like that person should at least remain a person of interest. And don't get me wrong, I, I'm not saying that I think that uh, this Billy Charlie you know, is the person responsible. Frankly, I I don't think the people in the sketches are the people responsible at all. But the police did think that they were responsible. And the idea that you're just going to cross somebody off of your list because their parents said they were home, that's just, that's tough to swallow in in such a a serious case. Yeah, yeah. And I think that what um, baffles me by some of this is that that same treatment wasn't given to other individuals who also had a very solid alibi or an alibi that was 
any no more or less solid than an individual's parents. Okay, so you mentioned that that there were multiple people who uh, whose names had come up more than once. Um, so besides Billy Charlie, who else? Well, Tommy Ward, the individual who we're going to talk about, his name was also given more than 30 times. So it seems like based on these sketches, Billy Charlie and Tommy Ward are the main There are two names that were given multiple times. When you have the same name being given more than 30 times, obviously that's going to that's going to raise a flag, right? Um Billy, they knew who Billy was. He didn't have a record. He had nothing. He had never been in trouble. But they knew who he was just due to small town life. And so they called him in, called his parents. And it's that very typical, oh, I know your parents. Oh, I know you. Oh, you were home on Saturday. Okay, great. You know, and that and that's probably the case, right? I mean, it's probably the case that, yes, Billy was home. But what had happened was... We also have then our individual Tommy Ward. Tommy Ward's name was also given more than 30 times. 30 times. And, and so the police bring in Tommy Ward, too, and ask him what he was doing They bring him in, and they same thing, bring him in for questioning. And he states that that day he had gone fishing with his friend Carl Fontenot, and they had gone to a party together, and that at about 4 a.m. he walked home. Okay. And, you know, one other thing uh, that I noticed is that these sketches that went out are uh, the person that people say looks like Tommy Ward is someone who has kind of long hair. And when Tommy Ward goes to the police station, which I, I don't know if we know exactly how long after the fact this is, but when Tommy Ward gets called into the police station... His hair is nowhere near as long as the sketch. Is that right? Right, it is. And But the police make a note to say that it had been cut kind of jagged in the back. It's almost his implication that his hair was longer at one time, and now it is shorter. Which, I mean, hair can be cut pretty easily, so that might be the case. But that also might be something you ask. Hey, when was your last haircut? I don't know. Yeah, and they just... The questioning that they brought him in, they they brought him in, he, he was able to say where he had been, he was able to say what he had been up to, and they, they made a couple notes, I think, uh, they took his picture, which they didn't do with Billy, so they did take his picture, they dated it, um, they did spend a little, you know, he did send, I think, a little bit more flags up for the police in the sense of, yeah, he, he says where he's been, but... We may have to revisit this. Okay. And so he says, I was with my friend Carl Fontenot all night, you know, fishing and then partying, whatever. Uh, So do the police follow up on that and check on his alibi? I mean, it seems like being with a friend might be a more solid alibi than being with your parents. The police do follow up with Carl. They go, they have a very brief conversation with him at first. Um, and they ask him to come into the police headquarters for questioning because because Carl at the time is on his way to work. And so they speak with him briefly. They ask him to come in for questioning, and he never shows up. He never goes into the station for questioning. And the thing is, is that the police drop it. They don't follow up with Carl again. 
they had seen Carl and said that his hair didn't match the color of any of the descriptions of these two individuals from JP's, and they just kind of left it alone. And again, what this does for me is that it sends up this kind of question in my mind is, here you have Tommy come in, he has perked some interest, his alibi, the person, his friend he's gone out with, doesn't come back in to talk to you, and you just kind of let it go. And the thing is, is when we look at Carl and Tommy, they are two different individuals in the eyes of Ada police. Carl has no record. He's never had any impact with the law. He's, you know, has just, has no history. As where Tommy has been arrested many times for misdemeanors, most of them very kind of drunk and disorderly conduct stuff. But the police know who he is, and he comes from a long history of a family with a reputation in Ada, with the police specifically. So the police, I mean, they seem interested in Tommy, but then they don't even actually follow up on it. We don't know why. We don't know if it's because they realize also how ridiculous it is to follow up on these sketches from JPs. You know, we have no idea, but it seems like... You know, at that time, they aren't super interested. And I think there were maybe a couple of other people whose names came up pretty frequently um, who they followed up on and kind of decided uh, weren't involved. Yeah. I mean, one by one, the detectives basically worked down the list of these names. They questioned all of the ones they could locate. Um, some of them had left Ada and weren't available. I mean, names of people that didn't even live in the area were given. So they, those they had to drop. They received calls about pickup trucks. They checked those out. So, and I don't want to beat a dead horse too much, although I, I still am just in awe of how they went about these sketches. So we still have, you know, Lenny... Uh, Lenny and David Timmons and Jean Welchel, who were there when Denise disappeared, who saw Denise being abducted uh, and who weren't taken to sketch artists, were they shown the sketch and asked, hey, do either of these guys match the person who walked out with Denise? I mean, what are we doing to validate that these sketches are, are even relevant? Well, it is... Ben stated that Lenny was Lenny Timmons was shown the sketches at some point. Now these are not he was not shown the sketches prior to them being made into flyers or going into the paper or but he was eventually shown the sketches and he was quoted as saying that they were in the ballpark of the person that he saw. So that's about it. That's the only verification that we got from the actual last three individuals who saw Denise and definitely from the three individuals who saw the person who left with Denise. Let's look at this investigation again. They're following up on these sketches. Let's assume that these sketches are actually worthwhile. But what else are they doing for this investigation besides trying to find her alive? Are there... Maybe other crimes that have happened uh, that are similar, or what else is going on besides these sketches? What else are the police doing to find out what happened? Well, the police are following up on leads that they're getting, calls that they're getting, things about the truck. 
But interestingly, they aren't looking at any prior cases or anything that even resembles the missing the case of Denise Haraway in the surrounding area. And was there anything like that that they should have been looking at, in your opinion? Well, in my opinion, yeah. A year before, there was a woman by the name of Patty Hamilton. Patty Hamilton was an 18-year-old girl, and she lived in the adjoining county uh, from where Ada was. It was 30 miles north of Ada. And she was also a clerk in a convenience store. Um, And shortly after 4.30 in the morning, on April 9th, 1983, Patty Hamilton disappeared while she was working. Again, this case is eerily like the case of Denise. She had been a, a sole clerk working at the convenience store. It was late. It, her disappearance was reported once a customer came in and found that there was no clerk working. There was only about $110 missing from the cash register. Patty's locked car was outside. Her purse was in it. The keys were in the store. And on the counter, there were two cans of soda. Again, just like the Denise case, there's no sign of struggle. And just these kind of left drinks and all of her belongings are, are left behind the, behind the counter. So it sounds eerily similar to the disappearance of Denise Haraway. I mean, there are so many parallels, including, you know, this open beverage being left out. It just, I mean, it almost sounds like you're talking about the same case. And how far away was it from Ada? It's only 30 miles north of Ada. And it was exactly a year. It was just a year and a couple of days before. This girl goes missing almost under exactly the same circumstances. And as far as we know, the police aren't looking at this at all. No. And was that murder solved? No. Or was there she was even no e- There was no evidence and no suspects, just like this case, or the maybe the evidence they had, like this case, was not treated well. The leads that they had very early in the pa- case of Patty proved to be fruitless, and now we were a year and 19 days down the road, and the disappearance was still a mystery. From what we know, the only impact that the case of that Patty Hamilton is having is the pressure that it's putting on Ada police that they don't want to have a, another missing girl from a convenience store go unsolved they want to zero in on somebody and they want to get their suspects and they want to make an arrest but they aren't trying to look at the evidence from the Patty Hamilton case and say, you know, do we have fingerprints here? Maybe it's the same person, but we have. And, and maybe it's because they treated the evidence the exact same way. I mean, it seems like for whatever reason, these cops aren't super interested in using evidence for anything. No, and it's, or talking to the police in the county that Patty was missing from, you know, pull your resources. To me, when you have two cases a year out that is this similar, why wouldn't you speak to one another? Why wouldn't you find out, well, who did you talk to? Let's talk to those people. Let's cross-reference names and see what were some of the leads from Patty and do any of those names show up again in this case? Anything. Yeah, I mean, it, it just it just seems like this 
went so wrong in so many spots, and it, it's just it's hard to justify. Um, so, so what happened next with this case? I mean, we could talk all day about what didn't happen and all of these things that went wrong, but what did happen? Well, instead of doing all the things we've talked about, the police decided to zero in on Tommy Ward. Okay, and so Tommy Ward was the person that we just mentioned. He was one of a handful of people who was reported to really match one of those sketches. Yes, and he had been called in for that questioning very briefly, had and then had been dropped. You know, at the end of of that that run of calling names, the police had no leads. And really, by the time they started to zero in on Tommy Ward, we have to remember months had gone by. So, so when we started out talking on today's episode. We were at the day after the disappearance. They're looking for Denise. Uh, the cops get these sketches pretty quickly after. You know, they're they're questioning Billy and Tommy, I think, in less than a week after Denise disappears. But now, all of a sudden, they drop it for months and then decide to, to pick it up and, and just pursue one of the people who was called in. Do we know... What precipitated that? Why did they say, hey, we're going to pick this back up and, and, and look at this guy again? Well, because in early October, a young man by the name of Jeff Miller shows up at the Ada Police Department. And he wants to talk to Dennis Smith because he says he has information about the Haraway case. And if we think this story was confusing already... It's just about to get more confusing. Okay. And Jeff Miller, he's somebody new. We haven't talked about him, right? No. So okay. listeners should know that Jeff Miller is a new individual. He has he shows up after this case has pretty much gone cold. There are no suspects, nothing is panned out, nothing is is nothing has happened for months. And now we're in October and Jeff comes into the headquarters, talking wants to talk to Dennis Smith. So I just want to note, too, um, and this doesn't really correlate in time, but, you know, we mentioned there was a $1,000 reward, and that went up later in May. So Denise disappeared in April, end of April, and then later in May, the reward went from $1,000 to $10,100. So over 10 times the original reward uh, for anyone that had information uh, about the case that would um, help solve this case. And so it's after that, um, months later, that Jeff Miller shows up at police headquarters. Yes. And we can't confirm if Jeff Miller was ever would ever go on to receive that money. Okay, so we've got Jeff Miller now at headquarters. What does he have to say? Well, his story gets pretty complicated, but... The gist of what he has to say is that he tells the story about these two young women who were at a party, and they are at a party the night Denise goes missing. These women told him that Tommy Ward had also been at the party with a woman named Jeanette Roberts. Now, Jeanette Roberts is also a name we have not heard before, but we're going to want to keep that name in mind. Okay. So he says he's getting this story from these two women that Tommy had been at a party with Jeanette. Midway through the party, they ran out of beer. Tommy offers to borrow Jeanette's truck to go get more. And as the story 
goes, as told by Jeff, Tommy returns to the party crying. He has stated that he went to Ada to get beer. He had taken a girl from a convenience store. He raped and killed her and was now feeling terrible. And this is supposedly some girl told this to Jeff Miller and Jeff Miller's telling the police. We don't we don't know when she told him or why it took and until October. And it's two October. women. Two women are giving this story to Jeff Miller, and Jeff Miller is now giving this story to the police. What should be noted is that Jeff Miller was not at the party. Jeff Miller is just telling the story that these two women told him. What I'm curious about is if the police did some sort of background check on Jeff Miller. You know, we we talked about how there should have been a background check on the Timmons and Gene Welchill, who were the ones who discovered that Denise was missing. Lara Bricker, who we had on the show, mentioned that that that's something they should do, is a background check on those people. So is there a background check on Jeff Miller? I see this being one of of three scenarios, really. Uh, number one is that Jeff Miller's the person who did this, and he's reporting Tommy because he wants someone else to go to jail for it. Uh, number two is that Jeff Miller is a good Samaritan. He really did hear all of these, uh, he heard these stories, and he wants to make sure that this bad person uh, gets put in jail so nobody else gets hurt. Or number three is I have no idea why, but he made this up, or the girls made this up, or somebody made it up, and they're taking it to the police. Um, So those are the scenarios I see, but definitely one of those would be, you know, Jeff's trying to point the finger away from himself. Um, But we don't see anywhere that the police actually look into, into him at all. No, the police don't really spend any time on him. They, you know, they want to know why the women didn't come in and tell the story firsthand. And there's no real answer for that. Why everybody has waited five months to give this story is another question. Um, they don't really have any answers to that. The police did try briefly to locate these two women, which they were unable to do. So they tried to locate these women and the police actually did find Jeanette. Well, they found Jeanette, but Jeanette is not the woman who Jeff Miller is talking about. Jeff Miller is saying that he was given this story from these two women that were at the party with Jeanette and Tommy. Okay, so Jeanette didn't give the story, but she's there with those women. But, you know, Jeanette says, yeah, we partied. Yeah, I've seen Tommy. No... Tommy has never borrowed my pickup because I think in the story that was told, the pickup that he used to get the beer and and kidnap and rape and kill somebody was Jeanette's pickup. So she should know whether or not someone borrowed that. Right. What Jeff also disclosed to the police in that moment was that he knew where Tommy was and that Tommy was staying with Jeanette. And so... He basically, Jeff Miller basically walked in, if we can kind of summarize, Jeff Miller walked in and said, hey, I've heard this story from these two girls that were at a party, that your guy, that this guy Tommy 
was at a party with Jeanette crying he had killed this woman. And oh, by the way, I know where Tommy is. He's living with Jeanette and this is where they're living. He basically came in and just handed the police Tommy Ward on a platter and said, this is your guy. I've got some backup story from two women who, by the way, we can't find. But I have this bit of information. You should go check it out. And this is exactly where he is. And Jeanette saying, no way. I didn't let Tommy borrow my car. Yeah, we might have been at a party that night. That sounds familiar. Because you also have to remember, I mean, you know, this is... Five plus months later, I mean, anyone who who listened to the Serial podcast, uh, season one, Sarah Koenig opens with a little exercise um, that really shows how how faulty our memories are, especially when we're trying to remember what we did, you know, even a week ago, let alone five months ago. Um, but you know, when they asked Tommy much sooner to the day, he said he was at a party. So. It, it seems like he probably was, in fact, at a party that night, um, maybe even with Jeanette, but not that he borrowed her truck for any amount of time or, or, or left the party for any significant amount of time. Right. And I think that the way that they got to this information is really interesting because the police went and they showed up at Jeanette's and... We have to also remember that Jeanette, we need to spend some time talking about Jeanette because she has a long history and a long, um, a reputation with the police. And so again, we're back to that sort of different treatment when an individual has a longstanding relationship with the police because Jeanette is questioned and is told this story and Jeanette, the one piece of information that Jeanette is the most, most secure about is that she would never have lent her truck to Tommy Ward to go and get beer. That, yes, they had gone to parties together. That, yes, they had done this thing. Yes, they had partied. Yes, he was living there. But she was sure of one thing, and that was that she would never have lent him her truck. And so, in my mind... That is a pretty airtight alibi. Well, that's it's one of the most important details, right? Because this this truck is is a more reliable description than the sketches. We know that there was a truck at McAnally's. Whether or not it was the same truck that was at JP's or anything else, we know there's a truck there. But she's certain that she had not lent him his truck, which is this really important part of this story that Jeff Miller walks in and tells the police. So what does this mean? Do the police think that, you know, Jeff Miller's story was right, but he got the truck part wrong? Or do the police drop it at this point and they say, all right, you know, he didn't borrow the truck. This must just be some weird story. What happens next? Well, the absolute opposite happens. Instead of them hearing this story from Jeanette saying, well, that was it. We're going to drop that. Instead, they walked away from that conversation waiting to talk to Tommy Ward because they were convinced that they were onto something. They were they absolutely 100% discredited what Jeanette said as if she was an unreliable source. And it makes me think of 
you know, the individual who came in with his family and the family said, yeah, he was with us, and they dropped it. Why did they hold on to Jeanette's story and say, no, we won't believe what she has to say? And they still decided to zero in. So just for a minute here to to try and look at this from the police's point of view, and this is five months later. They've got this this case that's been cold for five months. They have this... um, you know, really elaborate story, not just people calling in and saying these sketches look like this person, but this this really elaborate story with specific people's names, with somewhat specific details as far as, like, how did Tommy Ward get his hands on a truck if he doesn't own one? Um, so I guess I can see maybe why the police would say, all right, this breaks down that story a little bit, but this is a lead we still need to to follow. And, and you know, like you mentioned, there were over 100 calls came in when those sketches went out. So they had a lot of leads to follow up on. And now in October of 1984, they don't have any leads. This is all they have. So even though it seems to be falling apart, you know, maybe it makes sense for the police to say, you know, at the very least, we're going to question Tommy again. And, you know, just see if there's anything, uh, anything to this story. And, you know, it, it, it doesn't look like the police spent that much time trying to track down these two women who Tommy supposedly confessed to, who I think would be but probably the most important people to talk to, even, even more important probably than Jeanette. But the, they don't. The cops don't uh, seem to put very much effort into finding them. And they... I think, never end up talking to them. No, they never are able to find them. And so, Tommy, what's the relationship here between Tommy and Jeanette? Because you said that that they're living together, so maybe the police are thinking that Jeanette's lying for Tommy because they're uh, so close. They are living together. You know, they were able to stay with Jeanette and her husband. Um... Carl, his friend, was staying with them at certain times. You know, they would get kicked out. They would come back. They were friends. They all hung out together. They all partied together. Um, You know, I I don't think it was much more than that. Other than, you know, they helped take care of each other. And so when Jeanette relayed to Tommy that the police were looking for him, he was shocked. He was surprised. Why? You know, he had already been questioned once he had stated what he had been doing and he kind of had had dropped it and so he but he got nervous to go back in I think Tommy listened to Jeanette and and Jeanette was very matter of fact and and said if you've got nothing to hide get in there and talk to them and so that's what Tommy planned on doing and yeah I mean Jeanette really encouraged him to go talk to the police to absolutely just to, to basically just to clear it up. And I think, you know, Jeanette thought that this whole thing was absurd and really just wanted Tommy to put the police at ease so that they would also understand that this was absurd. And so I think Jeanette and Tommy at this moment are, are just thinking this is going to go away. You know, sure, there's anxiousness. Sure, there's nervousness talking to the police. Both of them have had many run-ins with the police department at this point. And so it's it's that kind of just kind of answer their questions and just be done with it. And like you mentioned, Tommy's living with Jeanette and her husband. It seems like, you know, 
Tommy Ward, Carl Fontenot, who he had mentioned going to the party with, um, and Jeanette and Jeanette's husband. They were all they were all friends. It's a small town, um, and it sounds like sometimes uh, Jeanette and her husband, whose name is Mike, would let people stay with them. And at this particular time, um, Tommy was staying with them. And I, I really got the impression, too, that um, Jeanette and Mike really looked at Tommy kind of as a family member, like uh, maybe kind of like a, a brother or a nephew or something like that. It seemed like uh, Jeanette's husband, Mike, kind of would take Tommy under his wing and try to get him some work and, you know, help him stay on his feet. Yeah. And so Mike even drove Tommy down to the police station and waited for him and said, go talk to the police, clear this up, and I'll give you a ride when you're done. I'll be waiting right here. And this is the point when, as easy as it should have been, none of this is going to turn out the way these two men thought it was going to. And we're going to talk more about that next week. This visit to the police station was not at all what Tommy or Mike or Jeanette or anybody else thought it would be. Stay tuned. Thank you for listening to Unraveled, Season 1, The Nightmare in Ada. Your hosts are Nicole Richards and Caleb Aring. Producing, mixing, and editing done by Caleb Aring and Matt Van Horn. Music by Broke for Free. Voice talent by Joe Eager. Tune in next week to listen to more of this case unravel.